There are frightful moments that every man must face. Times when he has to go eye to eye with his greatest fears. Think of an army paratrooper as he jumps from the plane into a raging battle, bullets flying, mortars firing. Think of a firefighter racing into a burning house to rescue an elderly victim trapped by the flames. And if those two examples aren't horrifying enough, imagine this. Think of a dad whose wife hands him their newborn and says she's got a night with the girls. And he's in charge of taking care of the baby. A battle and a burning building are scary, no doubt. But a baby? This is over the top. What's a man to do with a baby? Natalie was our second child. It was way past time for Kathy to get a night out. And Kathy was so careful. My wife made it so easy for me. She had me practice, in fact. You take the bottle, Sandy, and you shake out a few drops right on your forearm. If it's either hot or if it's cold, no good. Hot might scald the baby's mouth, cold, and she won't drink it. You shouldn't be able to feel the milk when it hits your skin. You just shouldn't be able to feel it. It needs to be lukewarm. She was so careful. And I followed her instructions precisely, or so I thought. It went so well, until I had laid baby Natalie down after her last feeding, I walked into the living room to watch Monday Night Football, and all of a sudden, I heard the most awful gargling, gagging sounds I've ever heard. It was terrifying. I raced back to the crib and discovered that Natalie had thrown up all eight ounces of Similac. I mean the whole bottle. I cleaned her up. I changed the sheets. I nestled her back into bed. And then I wondered, what in the world did I do wrong? I mean, I thought I had mastered this daddy thing. I had envisioned myself as father of the week. What did I do wrong? Well, that's when I walked back through the kitchen and I noticed sitting on top of the trash, the can, the can of formula. And I noticed on the, on the front of the formula, I'll never forget the words, it said, mix four to one. I had fed my daughter eight ounces of 100 proof Similac. <laughs> the equivalent of 32 ounces. I had OD'd my own child. And believe it or not, that girl never again took a plastic nipple. Never. She rejected bottles from then on. And who can blame her? I didn't know one bad experience could sour a kid toward a plastic nipple. That one experience could have such a permanent impact on a child until the next time Kathy took a night out. Natalie cried for hours. She was obviously hungry, but I couldn't get her to eat. I emptied the milk out of the bottle and I put fruit juice in the bottle, but she spit it out. I put Coca-Cola in the bottle and she spit it out. I took the bottle, wet the nipple, rolled it in sugar, stuck it in her mouth, and she spit it out. Every time I put a plastic nipple in her, to her lips, she spit it out. She wanted nothing to do with plastic. All my attempts at sweetness didn't solve the problem. I was going to have to change 
what I was offering my child. And my little confessional today provides us a great outline for Jesus' letter to the church at Laodicea. Here's an outcome that you should fear above all others. For unlike my baby daughter's milk, in your relationship with God, you don't want to be lukewarm. You don't want a Christianity that can't be felt and won't be noticed. God despises a faith that's room temperature. A lukewarm faith causes God to gag. He will throw you up quicker than my daughter tossed that pound of heavy-duty brake fluid. Imagine yourself as a grain of upchuck flowing and flying from the throat of Almighty God. Now that isn't my picture. That's the image that Jesus wants you to consider in this final letter to the church at Laodicea. And simple sweetness, that's not going to solve the problem. Today, God is calling you and I to make some radical changes in how we are relating to the risen Lord Jesus. The title of our study on this last of Jesus' letters to the seven churches is How He Sees You in Laodicea. In Revelation 3, verse 14, Jesus instructs John the penman and to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write. Now immediately, you should notice a difference. In these previous six letters, Jesus commanded John to write to the angel of the church at Pergamos, or to the church in Thyatira, or to the church in Sardis. Even though these churches had problems, each church still belonged to Jesus. It was His church in that particular city. But here the wording gets altered, notice. It's subtle, but it's extremely telling. This last church isn't Jesus' church in Laodicea. It's the church of the Laodiceans. These people have taken over the church. Laodicea means rule of the people. And that's what had happened in Laodicea. People had wrestled control of this church from Jesus, and they had made it their church. No one sought the Lord and His will here. They had the attitude, we can run our own church, thank you very much. Rather than people seeking the Lord and daring to do His will, these leaders relied on consensus. You see, everything in this church was put to a vote. Nothing was done to upset the apple cart or to rub anybody the wrong way. Peace at all costs was the rule in Laodicea. Commentator Joseph Seiss, he writes this of the church. Its name designates it as the church of mob rule. The democratic church in which everything is swayed and decided by popular opinion, clamor, and voting. We'll see later in verse 20 that this was the central problem in Laodicea. This was a church without Jesus. The Laodiceans had locked Jesus out of his own church. Like the pastor's little girl saying her prayers at the end of a very long Sunday. She said, Dear Lord, we had a great time at church today. I just wish you had been there. Jesus was on the outside of this church trying to get in. He was rapping on the door. This was a desperate situation. Laodicea was the hijacked church. 
people had taken the reins and had forced Jesus out of his own church. Jesus begins by reminding this church just who it is that they've locked out. He says, these things, says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I mean, this is not just the Jesus who slept in Galilean grass and sailed the lake with a few fishermen friends and walked the halls of Herod's temple. No, Jesus is now the king of the jungle. He roars from heaven's throne. He rides on the clouds in the chariot of God, and He does exactly as He pleases. He is the main attraction of the temple in heaven, worshipped by angels and saints alike. This Jesus is risen and exalted. And here He calls Himself the Amen. You know, Amen is a word of affirmation. We say this all the time. It's a, it speaks, basically it means, so be it, or right on. This is how we punctuate our faith in God's truth. We say, amen. This word is a spiritual exclamation point. When a football ref goes under the hood to review the video of the previous call, and then he comes back and he announces to the crowd, the ruling on the field stands. At that point, there's no more debate. And that's the meaning of the word amen. No more debate. The ruling stands. And Jesus has the final word. You see, while on earth, Jesus was a teacher. He pleaded his case with people. He wrestled for the souls of men and women. His job was to persuade. He stood at the crossroads, at the juncture of many different ways and different versions of truth and various philosophies of life. There was Jesus claiming to be the way and the truth and the life. He said he alone could escort men into the Father's presence. In a sense, at his first coming, Jesus was running for office. Not some political office, but he was running for king of hearts. Jesus was on a mission to win the allegiance of sinful men and women, to win our hearts. Our job today is to carry on that mission. We speak to men on behalf of Jesus. We're called ambassadors for Christ. But in a sense, Jesus has moved on from this role. Ambassador is no longer his mission. This is our mission. Jesus is now the king of the jungle. Today, the still small voice that appealed to minds and swayed hearts drowns out all other voices. Revelation chapter 1 tells us that his voice is like the roar of many waters, like a major waterfall. Jesus' voice silences the world's noise and foolishness. Jesus is now the Amen. His word is final. In the church, His ruling stands. There's no more debate. Jesus no longer makes appeals, but He gives orders. How ludicrous it is to lock this Jesus out of His own church. Well, Jesus is also the faithful and true witness. As we'll see, the Laodiceans, they were living in a fog of pride and self-sufficiency. They were blind to spiritual realities. You don't realize none of us has 20-20 spiritual insight in, in eyesight. As Paul said to the Corinthians, we see in a mirror dimly. And yet Jesus is the faithful and true witness. Jesus is going to say some hard things to these Laodiceans. But they should know that in all he says, he is faithful and true. This past week, again I was watching Monday Night Football. Maybe that's my problem, watching too much Monday Night Football. 
But this past Monday night, Arian Foster for the uh, Houston, uh, Texas team, he ran all over the Jets. This guy's awesome. He's, he's a great running back. Well, after the game, they were interviewing him, and they were asking him some non-football type questions. Foster said that he enjoyed learning from other people. He was very humble about it. He said that he could learn from anybody. He particularly liked listening to elderly people and getting advice from them. And then he made this statement. After all, and I quote, we're all just out here guessing. The announcers, they oohed and awed over his sage wisdom. But as soon as he said it, man, I started shouting at the TV. No, no, we're not. We're not just out here guessing. Jesus is the faithful and true witness. Arian and every one of us needs to listen to Jesus. He's the amen. He's the reliable witness. And Jesus is also the beginning of the creation of God. Now there are some cults today who deny the deity of Jesus and they use this verse to support their heresy. They claim that Jesus can't be God, for here he's part of God's creation. But that's not what this verse means. Understand, the Greek word translated beginning is arche, from which we get the word architect. It means source or origin. And the Bible is clear. Jesus was not created. Jesus has always existed. Jesus was the initiator of creation. John knew this truth. John the Revelator. You know, he wrote another book, his gospel, the gospel of John. And in that gospel, it begins as follows. In the beginning was the Word, or Jesus. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him, nothing was made that was made. Jesus, the Word, created all things. Jesus is the beginning of the creation of God in the sense that He's its origin. He is the ruler of all that is and is to come. Now, why would you want to throw this guy out of your church? And yet, that was the attitude in Laodicea. In verse 15, Jesus confronts this church with some harsh words. He says, I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm... And neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Christians apparently are like coffee. Piping hot, Joe? That's good. As a matter of fact, iced coffee, that's a delicacy. Either really hot or really cold is what you want. What you don't want is in between. Lukewarm, tepid, room temperature coffee. What do you do? You spit it out. Now understand, Laodicea had two sister cities in the Lycus Valley. Ten miles to the east was the city of Colossae, just below the snow-capped peak of Mount Cadmus. As the snow would melt, it would send cold, fresh streams down into Colossae. Six miles to the north of Laodicea was Heropolis. This area was known for its hot springs. Even today, vacationers come there to relax in the thermal waters. They say that the water temperature in Hierapolis is always a soothing 95 degrees. Well, Laodicea was built at the crossroads of two major trade routes. This made it a very prosperous city, but it had one Achilles heel. It lacked a water supply. 
And thus water had to be piped in from Colossae and from Heropolis. In fact, the Roman aqueducts can still be seen there. But here was the problem. By the time the cold water arrived from Colossae, the hot Turkish sun had warmed it up. And the six miles that the hot water flowed from Heropolis was enough time for it to cool down. Thus, Laodicean water was always lukewarm. If you were a visitor there and didn't know, and you took a drink from a fountain, you'd spit it out immediately. You'd be repulsed by the lukewarm taste. And this was God's reaction to the spiritual temperature of the members of the church of Laodicea. They were neither zealous and fired up about the things of God, but neither were they obstinate and bitter and cold toward God. They were just indifferent. They just didn't care. That was their problem. They were indifferent. They had a faith that couldn't be felt and wouldn't be noticed. If you'd shaken them out of the bottle on your arm, you wouldn't even feel them when they hit. And if I had a special thermometer this morning that could read your spiritual temperature, how would it read? Would you be hot? On fire, ablaze with passion for Jesus? Or would it read cold toward God and cold toward the things of God? Jesus says, I could wish you were cold or hot. Now obviously Jesus would prefer that you're hot. But even cold is better than lukewarm. I mean, if I'm cold, I'll shiver. I want to get warm. I'll grab a blanket or I'll turn up the thermostat. But if I'm room temperature... I'm just comfortable. I mean, why change? Why make any alterations? I'm comfortable. It's room temperature. I'm lukewarm. And this was the problem in Laodicea. The Christians were comfortable. Their lives and their faith had become easy. They had constructed a low-maintenance Christianity. These folks worshipped the God of convenience. They might have said they worshipped Jesus. But they worship the God of convenience. Reminds me of a poem by Wilbur Reese. It's entitled, Three Dollars Worth of God. Let me read it to you. I'd like to buy three dollars worth of God, please. Not enough to explode my soul or disturb my sleep, but just enough to equal a cup of warm milk or snooze in the sunshine. I don't want enough of God to make me love a person of a different race or pick beets with a migrant. I want ecstasy not transformation. I want the warmth of the womb, not a new birth. I want a pound of the eternal in a paper sack. I'd like to buy three dollars worth of God, please. I hate to tell you, but God doesn't come in three dollar portions. And yet this attitude is indicative of the church today. You see, our biggest problem isn't some heretic on the inside distorting the faith or an opponent on the outside attacking the faith. It's believers like you and me just ignoring the faith. On Sundays, we acknowledge the right doctrines and confess the correct creeds, but then we leave here and we ignore the implications of all that it means. We believe Jesus is alive, but then we live as if He's dead. We believe the Bible is God's Word, and yet like Arian Foster, we're out there living our lives like we're all guessing. We believe in prayer. We just don't actually do it until we've exhausted all our other resources. We believe in hell, 
but we'd rather talk football with our friends than bring up their eternal destination. A recent USA Today article noted a trend in today's culture. It said, folks today aren't ardent atheists. They're not out there trying to disprove God. They just don't care about God. They don't think about heaven. They don't consider absolute truth. They've grown spiritually apathetic. The article goes on and it says, 18% of Americans deny that God has a plan for everyone. 28% say they no longer look for a deeper purpose. 46% never even wonder if they're going to heaven. You see, here's my theory. What's happening in the culture is only mirroring what's happening in the church. If Christianity doesn't matter to Christians, then why is it going to matter to unbelievers? Why should they care if we don't? The English word indifferent, it literally means no difference. And a lukewarm Christian has a faith that makes no difference whatsoever in their everyday life. It's rarely ever felt and it's really never noticed. Their faith is inconsequential as to how they handle their money and treat their friends and conduct their business and interact with their spouse and raise their kids. Their relationship with God is unrelated to real life. To a lukewarm Christian, faith is like fantasy football. you got these guys that are all caught up in fantasy football. But it's all abstract. It doesn't really exist. I mean, you got a league and a team and players and you play games and keep scores. And it only exists in the imaginary little mind up here on top of your shoulders. That's the only place it exists. Your involvement isn't tied to anything real or costly. You play a game, yet you never break a sweat. It all has no impact on anybody outside your little pretend circle. And this was the church of the Laodiceans. They met together on Sundays to participate in pretend worship. Jesus wasn't even invited, but they still had church. They sang songs about God and read little Bible verses and talked about noble ideas and acted spiritual and bounced a few prayers off the ceiling, even looked religious in the process. They put on the same show every Sunday while the Lord they supposedly served stood out there on the step the stoop, beating on the door, hoping that somebody inside would open the door to him. Rather than fantasy football, this was fantasy faith. And I'm sure there's a league forming near you. The real Jesus was too disruptive. He was too uncomfortable for the church of the Laodiceans. That's why they locked him out. I mean, Jesus would have spoiled their church. Jesus would have challenged them to stop robbing God and tie their income. Or be more passionate in their worship. Or dare to feed a homeless person. Or take a stand at work. Or share their faith with a neighbor. With Jesus in charge, they would have had to grow and branch out. And move outside their comfort zone. Rather than always talk about how much they love Jesus, if he had been there, he would have expected them to actually show it. Make no mistake about it, the charade the Laodiceans carried on from week after week, it was disgusting to Jesus. Understand, Jesus desires fellowship with you and me, so much so that he died to win the opportunity. 
Today he hungers to spend time with people who will love him. His hunger is so strong that it sent him to the cross. Now imagine, what kind of repulsion does it take to trigger a gag reflex strong enough to override the hunger that nailed Jesus to the tree? How nauseous must he get to throw up that for which he is so hungry? Now please, I'm not going to debate with you as to whether or not the Laodiceans walked away from their salvation or if once saved, always saved, or if they were ever truly saved in the first place. I'm not going to parse those things. I'm just saying to you that nobody should get comfortable if they're being compared to a grain of upchuck hurling out of the back of Jesus' throat. If that's you... You need to repent as quick as you can. That's not a secure theological position to take, okay? Rather than $3 worth of God, we need to realize that God only comes supersized. A big God does whatever He pleases, and folks who truly worship Him will bow before Him and obey what He says. There's a song entitled Indifference. It tells us what happened the day that Jesus Christ came to Lilburn, Georgia. When Jesus came to Golgotha, they hanged him on a tree. They drove great nails through hands and feet and made a calvary. They crowned him with a crown of thorns. Red were his wounds and deep. For those were crude and cruel days. Human flesh was cheap. But when Jesus came to Lilburn, they simply passed him by. They never heard a hair of him. They only let him die. For men have grown more tender, and they would not give him pain. They only just passed down the street and left him in the rain. Still Jesus cried, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And still it rained, the winter rain, and drenched him through and through. The crowd went home and left the streets without a soul to see. And Jesus crouched against a wall and cried for Calvary. The implication is that Jesus prefers the piercing nails to the indifferent glance. Though the folks who cried out crucify Him rejected Jesus, at least they heard. At least they heard Him. At least His words still had a chance to convict them of their rebellion and reach deep into their hearts. The indifferent person is immune to His words. The indifferent person never hears. They silence their ears. Again, Jesus prefers that you be hot, but even cold is better than lukewarm. A lukewarm believer has been inoculated with the truth. It's like getting a flu shot. He gets just enough of the virus to make him immune to its effect. Likewise, a lukewarm believer has just enough truth to think he's okay, to think that he's cool with God. Everything's okay between me and God. He doesn't realize that his half-heartedness is making Jesus sick. There's an old saying, he's got just enough of the world not to be happy with Jesus and just enough of Jesus not to be happy in the world. That's lukewarm. The Laodiceans were an example of a group of folks who had built up an immunity to the truth. They had conned themselves into assuming that they were okay with God. How they saw him, themselves wasn't even remotely similar to how Jesus saw them. Notice Jesus says, verse 17, 
because you say, I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. I mean, the church at Smyrna saw, her, saw herself as poor, and yet Jesus said, no, you're rich spiritually. Here, the, it's the exact opposite. The Laodiceans saw themselves as rich, but Jesus sees them as wretched and miserable and poor. Realize the church of the Laodiceans mimicked the attitude of the city in which they were located. Sitting by the trade routes caused the city to prosper. It became a banking center, the Wall Street of its day. In fact, when the area was rocked by an earthquake in 60 AD, it was Philadelphia just up the road that appealed to Rome for help to rebuild. But not in Laodicea. Roman historian Tacitus writes, Laodicea arose from the ruins by the strength of her own resources and with no help from us. This city was proud. They didn't want a handout from the government. They were self-sufficient. They trusted in themselves. And the church of the Laodiceans had the same attitude. It reminds me of the 13th century philosopher Thomas Aquinas. On a visit to the papal palace, the pope at the time showed him Rome's vast treasure, her incredible wealth. Recalling what Peter said to the crippled man at the temple gate, he said, Well, Thomas, the church can no longer say, Silver and gold have I none. Thomas Aquinas replied, Yes, and neither can we say, In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Aquinas knew that material wealth doesn't buy you spiritual power. In fact, material wealth is very little, very insignificant in God's estimation. You see, the Laodiceans, they saw themselves as self-sufficient, in need of nada. Whereas when God sized them up, He viewed them very differently. Spiritually speaking, He saw them as wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. It brings to mind Proverbs 14, verse 12. There is a way that seems right to man, but its end is the way of death. We're all vulnerable to spiritual blind spots. Even the most objective among us are blind at times to our own weaknesses and sins and hypocrisies. It reminds me of the elderly lady who was scheduled to go see her doctor. She had made an appointment. She was so embarrassed. This was such an embarrassing situation. She whispered to her doctor. She says, Doc, I've got this terrible problem. I pass gas constantly. You just can't hear me or smell me. As a matter of fact, Doc, I've already done it a couple of dozen times since I've been talking with you. Well, the doctor, she, he prescribed the lady some medication and told her to come back as soon as the prescription was used up. Well, weeks later, she, she came back. She reported back. She says, Doc, she says, the problem is worse. It's gotten worse. They're still silent, but now they smell. The doctor said, Ma'am, that's good. Now that, would you got, now that we've got your sinuses cleared up, we're going to go to work on your ears. <laughs> you know, it's a strange truth about human anatomy that we can't smell our own body odor or our own bad breath. This is why God gives us wives. We can't smell ourselves, but the wife can, and she lets us know. 
This was the problem in Laodicea. This church stunk like a skunk, but they couldn't smell their own stench. They were oblivious to their own spiritual condition. In verse 18, Jesus prescribes a remedy for what ails this church. He says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich, and white garments, that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. You see, the shepherds around Laodicea, they, they bred a glass, glossy black wool. The area was renowned for this fabric. And grew, it grew into a clothing capital as well as a banking center. In fact, the city of Laodicea ended up both the Wall Street and the Rodeo Drive of ancient Asia. But again, it wasn't their shiny black wool that impressed Jesus. Nor was it their minted gold coins. It was the gold refined in the fire of His correction and the humility it produced. It was the white garments of purity that came from God's closet. It was Jesus' gold and His garments that spoke of humility and purity and honesty. And this is what He wanted them clothed in. It's interesting, Jesus had just revealed this church's spiritual bankruptcy. They're broke, they're impoverished. But now he counsels the Laodiceans to buy from me gold refined in the fire. Now what kind of currency do you use to purchase purity and a genuine faith? What kind of currency buys these things? I'll tell you what it costs you. It costs you your pride. If you want to get right with God, it'll cost you your pride. One author writes, The coin of God's realm is need and desperation. The price He requires is the humble concession that I have nothing with which to bargain, nothing to trade, nothing with which to make so much as a meager down payment. You see, you purchase the gold of God's purity and humility by abandoning your self-reliance and throwing yourself on His mercies and relying on His ability to bless, not your goodness or your, your condition. You purchase God's blessing with repentance and faith. But there's more to Jesus' counsel. He says, And anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. The Laodiceans, they needed a cure for the spiritual blindness that they suffered. It's interesting, in Laodicea there was a white caulk. They called it Phrygian powder. It claimed to be healing for the eyes. You would mix it with water, it would become a paste, you'd smear it over your eyes, and then it supposedly sucked out the harmful infections. Well, Jesus is encouraging the church at Laodicea to seek Him for a spiritual solve that would open their eyes, their inner eyes, to their own condition. He's saying, pray for heaven's objectivity. You see, until I see myself from Jesus' perspective, I'm oblivious to my real need. We need Jesus to open our eyes to the truth about ourselves. And then verse 19 gives hope. He says, and as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. I mean, even as repulsed and as disgusted as Jesus was with this church, He still loved them. He still wanted to restore them to fellowship. As we'll see in the next verse, He's locked out of His own church, yet He's outside the door knocking and calling and pleading. One Bible commentator puts it, it is God's final punishment to leave a man alone. I mean, if Jesus had walked away from Laodicea, there would have been no hope. 
But he was still there, knocking and knocking, calling and calling, loving and loving. Remember Hebrews 12, verse 6, For whom the Lord loves, He chastens. Hey, if the Lord doesn't bother to rebuke us and spank us when we need it, it means He doesn't care much about us in the first place. Like a father with his child, it's God's discipline that reveals His love for us. And then He continues, Therefore be zealous and repent. You know, the night I realized that Natalie no longer took a plastic bottle, she was hungry, man. She was crying, and I was in a panic. I tried filling her bottle with juice and then with Coca-Cola, and then I tried to roll the nipple in the sugar. I was so desperate. But what I needed wasn't some sweet, sugary approach or remedy. I needed to change my approach to my daughter. I did a good thing. I got Kathy's counsel. And I learned a new technique called cereal. Worked. And this is Jesus' counsel for lukewarmness, not cereal. But he wants us to change course. He says, do something different. Be zealous, man, and repent. Jesus is saying, stop living the same way, expecting different results. I mean, don't you know this is the definition for insanity? Doing the same thing over and over again, expecting different results? Jesus is saying, be zealous and repent. Turn around. Do things different. Go in another direction. Stop being indifferent. Start caring again. Go in a new direction. Turn your life back toward Jesus. Cultivate some caring and some desiring. Admit your true condition. Humble yourself. Be objective. Don't just stay stuck in your pride and in your stubbornness. You know, it's interesting what ultimately happened to Laodicea. Due to its lukewarm water, the city was abandoned. And the population, they moved closer to their water source. And this is good advice for us. Some of us this morning, we need to pick up from where we're at. And we need to move closer to the source of spiritual living water. We need to return to Jesus. That's what we need to do. For Jesus says in verse 20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Laodicea was the church without Jesus. They had locked the Lord out of His own church. In 1851, Holman Hunt authored a famous painting called The Light of the World. Jesus stands outside a door that's covered with ivy and with leaves. This door has been closed. And Jesus has been outside now for a very long time. And if you notice carefully about the portrait, there's no handle on Hunt's door. This is so odd. For every door should have a handle. When asked, though, about his omission, Holman Hunt offered a brilliant explanation. He said, The door is a picture of the human heart. And the handle is on the inside. And indeed it is. The handle of your heart is on the inside, not the outside. Certainly Jesus could have barged His way in. We learn from the church of Philadelphia that Jesus is the one who opens and no man shuts. If He wanted, He could have tore the door off the hinges. But Jesus created your heart with the handle on the inside. He created you with the ability and with the authority to choose. 
You have a free will that you exercise as you please. And Jesus won't violate this gift that He's given you. He's never kicked in a door. Jesus is a gentleman. He stands and He knocks. And He promises, If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and dine with him and he with me. And this, this is such an amazing promise. When Jesus expresses his desire to dine with us, he chooses a Greek word rich in meaning, depneo. Leon Morris writes, The depnon was the main meal of the day and was a leisurely affair, not a hurried snack. Think Thanksgiving dinner every single day. This is what Jesus invites us to. Thanksgiving dinner with Him every single day. The Depnon was the main venue in Roman society for interpersonal relations, for the making of friends, and for the deepening of family ties. That's what occurred at the table. Hey, you made a living in the market, but life was lived out at the table. And if Jesus wants to develop this kind of deep community with a church full of hijackers who stood him up for longer than they let him in, then certainly he wants to cultivate this kind of friendship with you and with me. He invites us to Thanksgiving dinner every single day. It's interesting, Laodicea was the most delinquent of the seven churches. To Philadelphia, Jesus had no criticism. But to Laodicea, he had no commendation. And yet it was to the upchucked church that he makes this most glorious promise. It's as Paul writes in Romans 5, where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. In verse 21, he declares, To him who overcomes, to him who refuses to drop to room temperature, to him who still cares. To him who bothers to open their eyes to the truth of their spiritual condition. To him who buys purity with faith and desperation. To him who repents and stokes the fires of passion. To him who opens the door when Jesus knocks. To this man or woman, Jesus promises, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my Father on His throne. To the overcomer, Jesus offers throne space. He offers throne space. He offers you the opportunity to sit with Him on His throne. God's throne chariot has a sidecar. And it's reserved for the person who takes heed to these things. And who overcomes. Imagine, you and I, if we overcome will one day reign and rule with Jesus. As we've pointed out with all seven churches, not only were these churches actual churches in the days of John, they also speak of seven eras of church history. Ephesus, remember, was the church of the apostles. Smyrna was the persecuted church under the Roman emperors in the second and third centuries. Pergamos was the compromised church begun by Constantine. Thyatira was the corrupt papal church of the Middle Ages. Sardis was the church of the Protestant reformers. Philadelphia was the missionary church from around the mid-18th century up until the present. That being true, 
Where then does the church of Laodicea fit on the timeline? Well, sadly, this is the modern church. This is today's church. John Stott, he writes of the church of the Laodiceans, perhaps none of the seven letters is more appropriate to the last day's church than this one. It describes vividly the respectable, sentimental, nominal, skin-deep religiosity which is so widespread among us today. Laodicea was a shallow church. You could sum it up by the old adage, it was a mile wide, but an inch deep. Arthur Burns was an economist. Some of you might recognize his name. He served as the chairman of the Federal Reserve under presidents Nixon, Ford, and Carter. Arthur Burns was Jewish. And once Arthur Burns was asked to deliver the invocation at a gathering of Christian politicians, his prayer, though, stunned everyone present. Arthur Burns prayed, Lord, I pray that Jews would come to know Jesus Christ. And I pray that Buddhists would come to know Jesus Christ. And I pray that Muslims would come to know Jesus Christ. And then he prayed, And Lord, I pray that Christians would come to know Jesus Christ. And this prayer may just be the best way to end Jesus' letter to the church of the Laodiceans. For not all self-proclaimed Christians know Jesus. How about you? Do you really know Him? I mean, really know Him? Or have you been practicing a Christless Christianity, a fantasy faith? Jesus still loves you. He loves you so much that He's knocking on your heart's door. It's time for you to repent. It's time for you to take a different course. You need to see yourself as Jesus sees you. You need to grab the handle of your heart. And you need to open the door to Jesus. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches.